Redfield Arts Audio. My revenge has just begun. I spread it over centuries and time is on my side. The great storytellers, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. With Bram Stoker biographer and film historian, David J. Skull. Film historian and filmmaker, Ted Newsom. And now, your host for The Great Storytellers, Mark Redfield. Welcome, gentle listeners. Enter freely and of your own free will. This episode of The Great Storytellers, we celebrate the life and work of Irish author Bram Stoker. Why is Bram Stoker a great storyteller? Can a writer produce one work so powerful, so influential, so inspiring, that it eclipses all his other work, the writer's life story itself, and the writer still be considered one of the great storytellers of Western literature? Orson Welles thought the novel marvelous, and in conversation with Peter Bogdanovich said, You know what would make a marvelous movie? What? Now you're going to laugh at this. Dracula. Nobody's ever made it. Nobody's ever really made it well. You're right. no, I don't mean well. Oh, you mean the, They've never paid any attention to the book. I did it I on the radio. I, I did it on the radio. It's the most hair-raising, marvelous book in the world. I didn't know. Oh, God, it's wonderful. They've never used anything from it. They haven't even opened the book. Oh, my God, when he comes to... Uh, when he comes in from in one scene uh, in London with a bag, a heavy bag, and throws it into the corner of the cellar, and it's full of screaming babies, you know. Oh my you know, it's the, the you know nobody's you know they can go far now. This is really Polanski, you know, one of those morbid boys is just made for him. You'd have to call it something else now. Sure. But it's, God, but of course it's told by four different, it's got the greatest chase in it in the world. They never even have a chase in it, you know. It's, no. a, it's all based on the play. Stoker was, was the stage manager of Henry Irving, and Dracula was based on Henry Irving. It was his vengeance on Henry Irving. He was a very considerable writer, Bram Stoker. Yeah, old drunken heard. Irishman, extraordinary man. He wrote some very good books. And he, he, he offered Dracula to Irving to make a play of it. It would have made marvelous for Irving. He didn't do it. But it was obviously Irving. That's who he was describing all the time. Bram Stoker wrote novels, published collections of short stories, nonfiction, including his love letter to the great actor Henry Irving. But it's his singular novel, Dracula, published in 1897, that endures. 
Stoker's novel Dracula is responsible for bringing the mythology of the vampire into the 20th century, where its unnatural, undead life continues on into the 21st century and beyond. Over 1,000 novels and short stories and over 200 films and television shows have used the character of Dracula, or a facsimile of Stoker's creation, in name only. Welcome to your life. Lord, everybody wants to rule the world from the film Dracula Untold. Even while we sleep, you will find you acting on your best behavior. Turn your back on Mother Nature. Everybody wants to. In popular entertainment, the popularity of vampire fiction in print and in motion pictures ebbs and flows, with any given season surprising us with new vampire tales. We can't get enough. Curious about the creator of this undying character called Dracula, I put a few questions to some friends who know a bit more on the subject than I do. I called upon film historian David J. Skull, who also happens to be a Bram Stoker biographer and filmmaker and Hammer Films documentarian, Ted Newsom. We'll be hearing from them throughout our program. Bram Stoker, A Childhood in Dublin. Abraham Stoker was born in Dublin, Ireland, on the 8th of November, 1847. Born Abraham, he soon became known as Bram to family and friends. His parents were Abraham Stoker of Dublin and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley of County Sligo. Bram was third of seven children. Bram Stoker was a middle-class Irish Protestant from the professional classes. His father worked as a civil servant and his mother was something of a progressive, certainly for her era. Mystery marks Stoker's early years as he was afflicted with some mysterious malady which forced him to be bedridden for the first seven years of his life. Seven years bedridden. In this time, young Bram Stoker was told stories by his mother, Irish fairy tales handed down from generation to generation, tales of the banshee and of leprechauns and witches and shapeshifters. Bram was also told stories of the horrors of the great cholera epidemic that swept Ireland and much of the world in 1848, occurring just before he was born. These and other forces shaped the man and his imagination. Stoker had strict religious upbringing, but he was also exposed to the theater in his youth. Christmas pantomimes and Punch and Judy shows stimulated his imagination, along with the fairy tales he was told. 
Bram Stoker biographer David J. Skull. Stoker's early life in Dublin is still mysterious in many ways. We know that he was apparently uh, almost physically incapacitated for the first seven years of his life, some mysterious paralytic illness that no one has ever been able to explain medically or psychologically. I have come to the tentative conclusion that he, like many children of the time, was um, given opiates. Uh, There were many uh, opium-based concoctions that were uh, given to children uh, for almost any reason. So, could Bram's paralysis have been opium-induced? The possibility isn't as outlandish as it might seem because in the mid-1880s, the administration of alcohol and opium to children, even infants, as a cure-all and prevent-all was frighteningly common. In his 64 years of life, Stoker left little autobiographical information, and there remains much speculation as to his early childhood illness. However, in his seventh year, he was cured and became something of an active athlete for the remainder of his childhood and teenage years. Trinity College and Early Professional Life Stoker's fascination with storytelling grew, and he attended Trinity College in Dublin from 1864 to 1870. He graduated with honors as a BA in mathematics. He was president of the Philosophical Society, and his first paper was on sensationalism in fiction and society. While at school, he became very close with Oscar Wilde's family. Stoker became increasingly interested in the theater while a student. He became the drama critic for the Dublin Evening Mail, a newspaper partly owned by fellow Dubliner Sheridan Le Fanu. Sheridan Le Fanu was the author, of course, of the early vampire tale, Carmilla. Biographer David J. Skull. There's an additional mystery about Stoker's studies at Trinity College Dublin. He exaggerated his achievements. Frankly, he did not, as he claimed, graduate with honors in pure mathematics. He actually dropped out for a few years to work, and he never took his final examinations on which his degree would have been based. And this remains a very, very stubborn puzzle. Somehow, either because he was so involved in campus activities and and extracurricular matters, he seems to have been given a degree almost as an honorary degree. We're probably never going to know the full story on that. Because there is so much in Stoker's life that is undocumented, and I'm pretty confident that uh, his papers were edited and scrubbed, Victorians were very fond of editing their lives for posterity. There are many uh, items of correspondence and papers that should exist, in Stoker's case, that just don't. But he seems to have been a disappointment to his own mother, Charlotte Stoker, who was a rather severe taskmaster. She uh, wanted all of her sons to exceed academically. And uh, Stoker was, uh, he was the laggard. He was the black sheep. And he seems to have latched on to Oscar Wilde's mother as a kind of a surrogate parent figure. Uh, Lady Wilde was a very uh, colorful, um, outlandish even, figure in in Dublin society. Uh, And uh, she was bigger than life in every possible way and seems to have taken Stoker 
under her wing. In later years, he would abandon her, uh, especially at the time of the Wild trial, where no one wanted to uh, be associated with the Wilds in any way. But she seems to have had a very important influence on his life and reading and seems to have encouraged him to uh, pursue many of his pursuits. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Most people associate one of the most famous lines uh, from Dracula, children of the night, what music they make, with Bela Lugosi from the 1931 film. But Stoker actually got the line from Lady Jane Wilde, Oscar Wilde's mother, who served as a kind of a surrogate parent to him. Uh, she was much more sympathetic to his aspirations as a, as a creative writer than his own mother was. Children of the Night was Lady Wilde's term for the ancient warrior tribes of, uh, of Ireland who wore wolf skins and uh, were, were very uh, prominent in, in her imagination. Stoker's major inspiration for uh, all of the writing he did, I believe, came from, from fairy tales and their annual embodiment as the Christmas pantomime, which was a major event for uh, children and adults in, in Dublin. And he attended his first pantomime uh, about at the age of eight, right after his uh, mysterious paralysis had ended. And um, I was amazed to discover a, uh, or to rediscover a piece of uh, Stoker's writing in which he talks about this. Going to its first pantomime is the greatest event in the life of a child, Stoker wrote, a great awakening from a long dream. All the rest of life must have been nothing but one continued sleeping vision, and this, the pantomime, is the real world in which the dawning imagination has sought and found a home to suit itself. And obviously Stoker is writing about himself. I don't think Stoker intended to write Dracula as a fairy tale for adults, but uh, that's how it ended up. But in my opinion, it is the primal energy of the fairy tale and the pantomime and uh, Irish uh, folk legends that uh, he was thoroughly immersed in as, uh, as a little boy, came to his aid and got Dracula over the, uh, the final finish line. Bram Stoker, Man of the Theater. Stoker, after his period at school, worked as a civil servant in Dublin, as had his father before him. But his interest in literature and art continued to seize hold of him. He began to publish short fiction and founded the Dublin Sketching Club in 1874, exploring his interest in art. He also published a work of non-fiction, The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland, published 1879. The theatre still held Stoker's creative attention the most, however. While Stoker was critic at the Dublin Evening Mail, an important event happened that would change the course of his life forever. The great English actor Henry Irving performed his Hamlet in Dublin, and Stoker was thunderstruck and taken by the performance irrevocably. Stoker wrote a review that caught Irving's attention. Irving invited Stoker to dinner, and at that first meeting the two began a lifelong friendship, and Irving would hire Stoker only a few short years later to be his personal secretary and be manager of his theatre in London. 
Sir Henry Irving, heard in a rare wax cylinder recording, performing the opening speech in Shakespeare's Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontent. Be joyous ever, by this gentle dog. And all the spells that now are upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean. Now are our brows filled with victorious I think he had a kind of a crush on Henry Irving. He idolized him. He, uh, as his son said, was prone to hero worship. And there are probably psychosexual dimensions of that we could get into as well. But uh, he latched upon Irving from the first time he saw him as kind of a uh, the paragon of the actor's craft and um, uh, threw himself at him. I mean, he, we, he when he was offered the job of managing the Lyceum Theater. There's no evidence he even negotiated a salary. I think he came to regret that because London turned out to be a very expensive place uh, for he and his wife to live. Logically speaking, even the life of an actor has no preface. He begins, and that is all. And such beginning is usually obscure, but faintly remembered at the best. Art is a completion, not merely a history of endeavor. It is only when completeness has been obtained that the beginnings of endeavor gain importance and that the steps by which it has been won assume any shape of permanent interest. After all, the struggle for supremacy is so universal that the matters of hope and difficulty of one person are hardly of general interest. When the individual has won out from the huddle of strife, the means and steps of his succeeding become of interest, either historically or in the educational aspect, but not before. Bram Stoker, Personal Reminiscences of Henry Irving, 1907. Filmmaker Ted Newsom. The dynamic between Stoker and Irving is fascinating because it's so lopsided. Um, Stoker was just absolutely in love with Irving in who knows how many ways. Um, he wrote years after the fact when the, the first time he ever actually met Irving. He had seen him on stage, but he met him it was playing in Dublin on, on stage or something. But he met... Irving, and he went into a faint. He said, you know, I'd never fainted in my life, but I was just so overcome and blah, blah, blah. And apparently uh, Irving reacted similarly. Um, you know, it reminds me of a, like, a, like a southern bell. So, oh, I've, I, I had a case of the vapors. I mean, he just passes out. Um, that's an odd relationship. But he, he certainly worshipped Henry Irving. And whether this uh, extended to a, uh, a kind of a sexual fixation or not, we don't know. Stoker's close friend, the novelist Hall Caine, wrote that he had never seen the life of one man so absorbed in the life of another. So Henry Irving was a grand obsession. I think I have to leave it to readers to decide exactly what kind of obsession that was. In 1878, Stoker married Florence Balcom. She was a celebrated beauty whose former suitor was Oscar Wilde. 
Stoker had known Wilde from his student days, having proposed him for the membership in the university's Philosophical Society while he was president. Wilde was upset at Florence's decision, but in time, Wilde would forgive Stoker. When Henry Irving hired Stoker, the Stokers moved to London. Bram Stoker was Sir Henry Irving's business manager at Irving's Lyceum Theatre in London for 27 years. Stoker was a one-man band, handling all of Irving's correspondence, running the daily business of the theatre, overseeing all printing and publicity, and all other departments, and making all arrangements for tours within the country and abroad, especially the United States, which Stoker became increasingly enthralled and fascinated by. On the 31st of December, 1879, Bram and Florence's only child was born, a son whom they christened Irving Noel Thornley Stoker. Stoker was raised a Protestant in the Church of Ireland. He was a strong supporter of the Liberal Party and took a keen interest in Irish affairs. As a philosophical home ruler, he supported home rule for Ireland, brought about by peaceful means. He remained an ardent monarchist who believed Ireland should remain within the British Empire, an entity he saw as a force for good. He was an admirer of Prime Minister Gladstone, whom he knew personally and supported his plans for Ireland. The work for and with Henry Irving was important for Stoker, and through him he became involved in London's high society, where he met all of the famous politicians, authors, composers, and celebrities of the era. Working for Irving, the most famous actor of his time, and managing one of the most successful theatres in London, made Stoker a notable, if busy, man. He was tirelessly and fiercely dedicated to Irving, and his memoirs show he idolized him. In the course of Irving's theatrical tours, Stoker traveled much of the world. Stoker enjoyed the United States, where Irving was very popular. With Irving, he was invited twice to the White House and met William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Stoker set two of his novels there, using Americans as characters, the most notable character being Quincy Morris of Dracula. He also met one of his literary idols, Walt Whitman. Stoker and Whitman enjoyed an incredibly close and loving friendship that ended with the poet's death in 1892. His friendship with Walt Whitman and Whitman's poetry had as profound an effect on Stoker and his life as did his relationship with Henry Irving. After Irving's death in 1906, he published his Personal Reminiscences of Henry Irving, a loving tribute to his idol and taskmaster, in equal measure minor autobiography and idolization of the great actor. The fame of an actor is won in minutes and seconds, not in years. The latter only helpful in the recurrence of opportunities, in the possibilities of repetition. It is not feasible, therefore, adequately to record the progress of his work. <laughs> Indeed, that work in its perfection cannot be recorded. Words are and can be but faint suggestions of awakened emotion. 
The student of history can, after all, but accept in matters evanescent the judgment of contemporary experience. Of such, the weight of evidence can at best incline in one direction, and that tendency is not susceptible of further proof. So much, then, for the work of art that is not plastic and permanent. There remains, therefore, but the artist, of him the other arts can make record insofar as external appearance goes. Bram Stoker, Personal Reminiscences of Henry Irving, 1907. Bram Stoker and his novel, Dracula. Stoker had his hands and mind fully occupied with his duties running the Lyceum Theatre and Sir Henry Irving's business life. But he also continued to exercise his creative muscles with his fiction. Stoker believed in progress and took a keen interest in science and science-based medicine, and these interests were after reflected in his fiction. All of the forces, images, and influences that fed and shaped his imagination came into play in the seven years it took him to write his undeniable masterpiece, Dracula. The Irish fairy tales, the theater that he was first exposed to as a boy, a classic tale of vampirism by a fellow Dubliner. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude and a languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I would not have interrupted. Dim thoughts of death began to open, and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle and somehow not unwelcome possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Whatever it might be, my soul acquiesced in it. From Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. Stoker would pen over a dozen pieces of long fiction and a collection of short stories, but Dracula would be his crowning achievement. No man knows where the castle of King Death is. All men and women, boys and girls, and even little wee children should so live that when they have to enter the castle and see the grim king, they may not fear to behold his face. From Under the Sunset by Bram Stoker. It's debatable how much of Irving really is in Dracula, uh, because as Dave Scalise pointed out, in Stoker's book, there isn't much there in Dracula. We read things into it, but there's not a lot of character there. On the other hand, Stoker had to deal with this guy every day, every day of his life for hours at a time. And the, the, there is certainly the, the sense of imperiousness, um, the, the idea of, uh, living at night and sleeping all day, which is what Irving did. I mean, he did the theater, but he'd stay up late at night in the beefsteak room, which is the, the, the private restaurant, party room or whatever at the Lyceum Theater. And all of his friends would sit around, you know, and smoke cigars and drink and, and talk about this, that, and the other. And finally, dawn would come and say, well, okay, fine, uh, see, you, see you tonight. So there is that, that obvious parallel. The other characters in, in Stoker's life, to me now, having looked at it, uh, also have parallels in the, the novel. Uh, Mina Harker, 
who in the book is representative of the modern woman. I mean, in the, in the, in the novel, she types which in 1880, 1890 was extraordinary. Wow, you know, a typewriter and the woman is doing it. Um, she's sweet and sensitive, but forceful, knows her own mind, desirable to all and, and so on. Uh, but she's not, she's not wimpy. Well, that's Ellen Terry. That's uh, Henry Irving's leading lady on screen and on screen, on stage and off for 20 years. They never got married. Uh, I, part of it was probably because Irving refused to get divorced from his wife. But part of it is because Ellen Terry wasn't having any. I mean, she was a, she was a remarkably 20th century woman for somebody living in the 19th century. Um, and Van Helsing is, uh, has to be a portion of Bram Stoker's own psyche. Uh, Van Helsing's first name is Abraham. That's, that's Stoker's name, Abraham Stoker, and that was his father's name. So clearly there's an influence, if only that as you're writing this down and rewriting it over six or seven years, the thoughts are going to come into you, whether, you, whether they're intentional or not. The dynamic between Renfield and Dracula, this very much this dominant, submissive, uh, master-slave thing, could it be, could it possibly be that Stoker never felt that way on some sort of level, you know, working under the, the great you know, Henry Irving? Um, you know, he accepted it. He bathed in Irving's reflected light uh, and he walked with giants, Gilbert and Sullivan, George Bernard Shaw, and uh, all of these, these tremendous celebrities of the time. But he was the appendage. He wasn't a star in his own right. He was, he was the, he was the the guy who walks behind the the, the elephants in the circus parade, sweeping up the shit, you know what, and give up show business. Um, so I think I think there are a lot of parallels to Stoker's life and the people in them in Dracula, the, above and beyond the obvious title character. The fame of an actor is one in minutes and seconds, not in years. From the personal reminiscences of Henry Irving by Bram Stoker. Where does this character, Dracula, come from? Stoker did indeed research European folklore and vampire mythology. Bram Stoker created a figure so powerful, so elastic, and inspiring to others, that surely the character is an amalgam of many people Stoker knew. We don't know if Stoker intended Dracula to be a, a kind of a satirical portrait of Henry Irving or a resentful portrait of Henry Irving. Irving, of course, did drain the energy out of him for, uh, for over 30 years. Despite what uh, the two boys who wrote uh, In Search of Dracula uh, argued that Dracula was based on a, a, the historical character of Vlad Sepesh, Vlad the Fifth Sepesh, Dracula. Um, the, the connections between Stoker's character and the historical character are pretty vague. The, uh, apparently, uh, the name was found by Stoker in his very earliest research. Um, but there are only two references in 250 or 300 pages of, of the pedantic writing that refer to the historical guy at all. I mean, there, Van Helsing refers to him once that this may be the same uh, Dracula from 700 years ago. And in early on, Dracula is talking 
about an ancestor of his uh, beating back the Turk at the Danube. This was a Dracula indeed, when it's clear that he's actually talking about himself. But no, this was, a, this was not a, a, a replay of a 500-year-old uh, Hungarian-Romanian uh, tyrant legend. This was a nightmare from a, uh, from a scared kid in Ireland. It has been repeated so often that Henry Irving was the inspiration for the character of Dracula that uh, people are sometimes surprised to find that there's no real documentation of that. Uh, it has been alleged, it has been surmised, uh, he did have a draining relationship with, uh, uh, with Stoker over a period of 27 years. He seemed to appropriate all of his life energy. He was a vampire, I guess, in that in that regard. Uh, Stoker may have thought that uh, Dracula, at least as he originally conceived of Dracula, as kind of the ultimate gothic villain, would have been an ideal part for Henry Irving to play on stage. But by the time he finished writing Dracula, there was none of that character left. The character of Dracula is banished to the shadows, barely appears on stage. This is hardly the kind of uh, role Sir Henry Irving would would have even considered for him for himself. But what's really ironic is that the this vacuity in the characterization of Dracula is probably what accounts for the book's longevity, because every reader has to project his or her own deepest fears onto that character, who is not very well described and who does not interact with other characters in a uh, normal human or even inhuman fashion. Uh, he is something that uh, we anticipate, but we don't see very much after the beginning of the book. But the secrets may be hiding in plain sight. It's very possible that we need look no further than to Stoker himself, his own personality, for the majority of what makes up his character of Count Dracula. We have one record of Stoker talking to a American drama critic in Chicago and telling him that uh, he had tried unsuccessfully to convince Henry Irving to play Dracula on stage and that Irving had laughed him off and uh, Stoker added that uh, Dracula would be a composite of so many of uh, Irving's wonderful villainous roles ranging from, uh, from Shylock to Iago to uh, many others. According to the veteran Chicago drama critic Frederick Donahue, who made Stoker's acquaintance during one of the Lyceum's American tours around the turn of the century, Donahue wrote, when the late Bram Stoker told me that he had put endless hours into trying to persuade Henry Irving to have a play made from Dracula and to act in it, he added that he had nothing in mind save the box office. If, Stoker explained, I am able to afford to have my name on the book, the governor can certainly afford, with business bad, to have his name on the play. But he laughs at me whenever I talk about it, and then we have to go out and raise money to put on something in which the public has no interest. So I guess there's a bit of a dig at Irving there, but of course he doesn't say that Irving inspired the character of Dracula. Uh, the character of Dracula had many antecedents, and I think we find them in uh, the uh, classic Gothic novels of Anne Radcliffe and uh, T.S. Lewis, the monk and the Italian, we find Dracula uh, in embryo in the demon kings of those pantomimes that uh, so fascinated Stoker as a child. 
he didn't need uh, Henry Irving to uh, give him the idea for a Transylvanian vampire. There were so many other, other sources, so many other uh, pieces of vampire literature that he was uh, very familiar with. The idea that Irving uh, essentially was Dracula may have originated with his son, Noel, who resented Irving. Uh, he felt that uh, Irving probably shortened his father's life. Noel Stoker's first name was Irving, and he never used it. And one senses a uh, antipathy toward, uh, toward the actor that his father may not have shared, but his son uh, certainly harbored. Stoker took seven years to write Dracula, not because he was polishing it to a high gloss, it's because he had a lot of difficulty writing it. We don't know how many early drafts there were. We know that uh, he did seek uh, help from an American uh, uh, book doctor at one point uh, who felt the book was beyond her capabilities and that Stoker was not, and that Stoker was not offering her enough money. She had been to a tea party with an antediluvian monster, and that they had been waited on by up-to-date men servants. From Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Lair of the White Worm, though, just seems to have uh, flowed out of him. It's one of the few manuscripts that we uh, can still examine, his handwritten manuscript. Rather than the product of a disordered, even syphilitic mind, uh, as it's often been uh, thought to be, it, uh, it, it's, it's extremely uh, uh, controlled. Each day's uh, work is, is entered. Uh, he obviously is writing with one draft. He isn't going back and changing things. Uh, it's a very controlled and organized piece of writing. And his handwriting, in fact, is unusually legible for Stoker, known for his uh, terrible handwriting, uh, in the manuscript for Lair of the White Worm. And I think it with Dracula, he censored himself. He was, I think, uh, haunted by the idea that Dracula, as he wanted to write it, the story of a completely immoral and corrupting villain in uh, modern London would have uh, been received the same way the picture of Dorian Gray was. Wilde's novel was a scandal. It uh, was used prominently as a piece of evidence in, uh, against him in, a, in, in his uh, notorious trial. Stoker wanted to make money with this book. He, he really didn't have a larger uh, purpose. He was having to moonlight ferociously to maintain his uh, style of life. Uh, we might say style of wife because I believe his wife Florence uh, was as much of a social climber as, as he was. At the end of his life, uh, he had nothing to lose, and uh, the lair of the white worm just flowed out of him. And it's a, a field day for, for Freudians, even though Stoker never was exposed to any kind of Freudian theories. It's a, uh, it's a highly entertaining, if uh, confusing and confounding book, but uh, I think we can be sure it's the book Stoker meant to write. The popular image, however, that we have of Dracula has little to do with Stoker's creation. The popular image we have comes from the theater and from films in the early 20th century. I am Dracula. Oh, it's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and 
blue. And with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. The character of Dracula had to be completely reconceived uh, for the theater in order to um, function in the context of a drawing room mystery melodrama, which was the only way you could do a play like this in the 1920s. Dracula had to get manners. He had to get a makeover. He had to get a new wardrobe. He had to get uh, uh, the evening clothes and the opera cape and the uh, the smarmy Transylvanian charm and uh, uh, had to be presented as uh, a character who might conceivably seduce a young girl. Uh, he's none of these things in Stoker's book. This is where the familiar tuxedoed image of Dracula that has informed uh, most of the films and pop culture iterations of Dracula, uh, down to Count Chocula, <laughs> you know, uh, came from. And it's, it is not a character Stoker uh, uh, conceived of. It's interesting to, to watch Dracula's fashion sense change when the, the mediums change. Uh, in the novel, of course, Stoker describes Dracula just wearing a black coat without a speck of color on him. And that changed, uh, certainly on the stage, but in films as well. There were practical reasons for doing what they did on stage, the, the cape, for example. Um, that was an invention uh, done during the uh, the early days of the uh, the theater adaptation because there's a gag in the end of the uh, the adaptation that Hamilton Dean did where Dracula disappears on stage. Well, it's a simple gag to do. Uh, the Dracula's got his back to the audience, the cape spread, and it's high collar, and the the good guys have a hold of his cape and you know they've got the crucifixes and he can't get away and so on well the actor ducks down so the high collar covers this and you don't know he's down he's already left on the trap door and then floomp they drop the cape oh my god Dracula's disappeared so it's a it's a simple stage effect but that accounts for about 50% of our image of Dracula which is this character in the cape well yeah he had to wear a cape with a high collar otherwise he wouldn't disappear this may be a bit counterintuitive, but I think Dracula has uh, resonated with readers for uh, over a century now because of its flaws as a novel. Uh, it is an unfinished book that the reader gets to finish in his or her own imagination. Uh, we participate in it. It is less a novel than a kind of story told around the campfire. It has more in common with the uh, oral tradition of folklore and... Uh, and all the fairy tales and pantomimes that folklore uh, begot than it does to the literary novel. It is also post-literary. It had its origins in the oral tradition. It found its grounding in the literary novel, and it has found its greatest afterlife in the medium of the moving image and the motion picture. It has gone full circle from pre-literate to post-literate and everything in between. It's the storytelling medium of motion pictures, however, that fully form everything we think we know about vampires and Count Dracula. Beginning with the very first true vampire film, Nosferatu, in 1922, the German adaptation of Stoker's novel. I am Dracula. A moment ago, 
I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms and he made me drink. When people ask me what is my personal favorite adaptation of Dracula on the screen, I think it's a trick question because uh, I admire many elements of many films. And probably the the best film adaptation of Dracula would be a montage uh, comprising clips of all the best done scenes from Stoker's book. In terms of fidelity to the novel, it's the BBC miniseries that was produced in the late 1970s, starring Louis Jordan as Dracula. Nothing has come closer to reproducing Stoker's plot than that adaptation, even if Louis Jordan himself does not look anything like like Stoker's Count. The 1922 silent film Nosferatu, I think, gets closer to the core of Dracula's being. Um, He is a repulsive character. He is animalistic. Uh, He is just a nightmare. He is probably worse than anything Stoker describes in the book, but uh, I think he makes an impact on film audiences that Stoker wanted to make on on uh, his reading audience. And of course, the 1931 Bela Lugosi film is the one I have seen more times than any. I've, uh, uh, it's it's a it's a terrible film. I think it's also a very important film. It's very it is probably the most influential bad movie ever made. Uh, the director, Todd Browning, was really thrown by talkies. He was really a master of uh, silent melodramas. And uh, Dracula, like a number of his other talking films, really threw him. But we have that indelible performance by Bela Lugosi. Never before has an actor been so thoroughly identified with a part that he literally went to the grave in costume. I don't think there's any Shakespearean actor who ever did that with Hamlet or Macbeth or anything else. But Lugosi was buried in his Dracula cape. The character was almost a vampire in in Lugosi's life. And I think many of us go back to that 1931 film just in the hopes that we might find something we missed before or make some new discovery. Um, uh, There are a lot of discoveries to be made in the simultaneously produced Spanish-language version that Universal did in 1931, which uh, contains most of the the shooting script, if not all of it. The uh, Lugosi film is rather truncated. But Lugosi's performance, uh, to me, it it is my favorite Dracula. It has nothing to do with Stoker. Uh, It is part of my uh, 
personal mid 20th century uh, history and and influence, and I, um, I I treasure it. In 1952, Bela Lugosi was interviewed upon his return to the United States after playing in a revival of the stage play Dracula in England. One of the great stars of the stage and screen, and Bela, I, I, I can make that introduction without any qualms and without any reservations, Sorry. because I, I don't know whether you know it or not, but Bela Lugosi, of course, always appears in, in the vampire pictures, Dracula, and so forth. But among the trade, he is considered one of the finest actors ever to come out of Europe. And that was, <laughs> that was many years ago, Bela, wasn't it? I think in Hungary? Yes, in Hungary. But first of all, before I answer any question, Jack, uh, let me tell you, it's a very pleasant surprise coming back after eight months from England to get such a wonderful break to be on the television and you, you interview me. And, uh, it's our pleasure to have you, believe me, because it's always wonderful meeting you and we're not just throwing plaudits around here either. Uh, incidentally, I, w I do want to comment on one thing, how wonderfully well you look. You look as though you had a rest over there, you look as though you have complete ease of mind coming back. Thank you, God is very good to me, <laughs> I can say that. Now, um, you see, I'm 30 years here in America and uh, eight months ago I was called to come to England to revive the American version of Dracula. Doesn't Dracula ever end for you? Mm -hmm. No, no. Dracula never ends. I don't know whether I should call it a fortune or a cause, but it never ends. I don't want... I don't know whether I should brag or complain about it, but Dracula is the only picture in existence in all the world, which since it is revived, since it is made in 19, uh, I don't know, 31, it is the only picture which is revived in every city in America every year. Well, you know, some people, Bella, would consider that a curse and some would consider it a very good omen because probably as a result of Dracula, you I make were, a living. Well, and you were typecast, you know. <laughs> you, you've, you've made many other pictures of its type, vampire pictures and, 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 and mystery pictures and things of that sort. But at the same time, I know you are always yearning, as all actors are, to do a different type of stage vehicle. What would you like to do, the romantic, the... No, I would uh, prefer to play comedy. <laughs> you see, after I, I finished now playing a half a year Dracula on the stage, I was called to make a picture here in London called Vampire Over London. It was a, a horror part, but the situation was so funny that really it caused his laugh. So I really enjoyed it. You know, Fred Allen wants to do uh, Hamlet. Jack Benny wants to do Hamlet. Bella Lugosi wants to play the uh, Sit down to the Bergerac. <laughs> Sit down to the Bergerac. Sure. And you'd probably do very, very well at it. Tell us a little more about the picture that you uh, made in England, Bella. What was the title of it? Um, Vampire Over London. I played a scary part and I was the cause to create comedy by scaring all the people around me. And uh, it was uh, rather a, a clever story and I think they would laugh at it very much. It's going to sell in, in America, especially. Yes. Was, uh, incidentally, Dracula your favorite role? After Dracula, my favorite role? What was your favorite role? Was it Dracula? Uh, in America, in English, yeah. or in Hungary at home? We never consider your Hungarian performances because they've been, you know, so many years ago. Yes, yes, that's right. Because in Hungary, my favorite parts were all Terence Molnar's uh, play, which uh, I created originally, like Lilium and the Guardsman. Did you Man play in view. the very first performance of oh, Lilium? Sure. 30 and years ago. 30 years ago, and here every year again, you know, sure. we have Lilium playing around the country. I think last year or the year before, two years ago, they made it into a, mu uh, a musical on sure, Broadway. Sure they did. Bell now, since I played Dracula, I'm the boogeyman. <laughs> This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches.
Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victim. In 1958, the British film company Hammer, after having great success with reviving Mary Shelley's creation in an all-color Curse of Frankenstein, starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, decided to reteam the dynamic actors in a new version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Even within their budget, uh, it flows pretty much like a potted version of Stoker's plot. Uh, they eliminate the long traveling back and forth to England and uh, Transylvania. Um, you know the, the more grandiose aspects of the novel. But Horror of Dracula is one of my two or three f most beloved films. And it's a good Dracula movie too. Another reason Dracula persists is that he is, in a sense, the perfect politician. He knows how to be all things to all people. He knows how to adapt from one generation to the next. He knows how to descend into low comedy and then revive himself uh, as a truly terrifying character. He is a survivor, and I think that's why a lot of people uh, uh, enjoy identifying with him. He's also a wish-fulfillment character. I mean, he's everything we want. He's, uh, he, is, he is rich. He has uh, a castle in Europe. He has a wonderful wardrobe. He has instant hypnotic control of the opposite sex or the same sex or uh, what's not to, to like. You know, he sleeps all day and parties all night. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it, some things about Dracula's appeal are just very, very simple. The influence of the Hammer version of Dracula in 1958 uh, changed the way people looked at horror films for a lot of reasons, mostly the obvious. Color, sexuality, and on-screen violence. Neither, none of those things had been part and parcel of the, the horror movie world in the previous five decades of motion pictures. One of the things that uh, is probably most influential in its own little orthodontic way is that the Hammer film introduced uh, on-screen canine fangs. Uh, most vampire movies before then, whether they're Dracula or some other uh, illegitimate relation, you didn't see Fangs, you know, the, you know, they just kind of nuzzled somebody and, and presumably bit them with their regular teeth. But in the, the Hammer films, consistently from 1958 on, um, they had these really nasty, murderous, uh, elongated wolf-like fangs. One of the interesting things about the Hammer film is that 
although the plot follows Stoker fairly carefully, there are a lot of things that that are part and parcel of what we think of Dracula, whether it's Stoker's novel or versions of it, that are just not there. The giant uh, castle with his broken battlements and cobwebs and all of that kind of stuff, and um, the, the crazed Renfield uh, groveling to his master. None of that's there. Um, you know, it's it's a it's like a streamlined version of this this fairly large epic novel. It yet it still works, which shows that the central core, the spine of uh, of Stoker's novel, was pretty strong. Christopher Lee was never shy about expressing his growing disdain for where the character was going in the seven or eight or nine Dracula films he did. As my dear friend Christopher Lee plays the character of Dracula, the women are very much attracted to him. I mean, that first picture you had the lady opening her French windows, lying back and waiting. It was a job, and he was never really in the position to say no, absolutely because he had a wife and child to support and if somebody was offering money and there weren't any other offers, he did them. I regarded this character as heroic, romantic, erotic. Irresistible to women, unstoppable by men. One of the things Lee complained about continuously uh, from the second Dracula film onward was that the filmmakers had lost sight of Stoker's character. Uh, they didn't know what to do with this character in the in whatever new story they had to do. In fact, this, the first film he made after the original Hammer Dracula, Dracula Prince of Darkness, although it, it's a nifty picture, Dracula doesn't say a word. I decided to play him as a malevolent hero. I decided to play him as a man of immense dignity, immense strength, immense power, immense brain. Because it's all there. He's a kind of a superman, actually. If you read the book, it's all there. He brings a wonderful, uh, virile, nasty uh, action to the character. But as an actor, it was incredibly frustrating for him. By the time he did the, the fourth Dracula film for, for uh, Hammer, uh, he was complaining, rightly, it's like they wrote the story and then tried to decide where they were going to put Dracula into it. That's exactly what happened on this. It was not written as a Dracula film at all. It was written uh, for another character, a sort of Oscar Wilde-type uh, uh, depraved nobleman who uh, comes back and avenges himself on these three old reprobates. Well, that, <laughs> Warner Brothers said, well, you're calling this a Dracula film, but there's no Dracula in it. Get Christopher Lee as Dracula and we'll make a picture. And so Hammer had to go to Christopher Lee and say, oh, okay, we're going to do another Dracula film. Um, and he says, I don't want to. And he said, well, no, we've got this script. And he looked at the script and he said, well, there's not Dracula. And well, yeah, we're going to change that character. He transforms into Dracula. I mean, that's, that's where they were at at that point. They just had to cram the character into it. The one thing Lee tried to do um, in most of the pictures, or some of them at any rate, was work a line or two from Stoker's character into the, into the script. He does it in a film called Dracula AD 72. You pit your puny brains against mine. I who have commanded nations. Yeah, not bad, not bad. And that's Stoker. 
Uh, and then the, the, the second one where the drag character, the Dracula character is actually sort of like a cross between Fu Manchu and Howard Hughes. Um, he's fighting Van Helsing in this building that's burning down around their ears. And he says, Vengeance has spread over centuries and has just begun! Hammer continued to make a series of Dracula films into the 1960s and early 1970s. Dracula, the idea of the character, if not Stoker's novel, continues to be fodder for films right to the present day. Straight horror takes on the character variations, children's TV, parodies, anything goes. You shall pay, Black Prince. I curse you with my name. You shall be... Blackula. Blackula. The Black Avenger. Rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula. Dracula's soul brother. The character of Dracula has become, in the second half of the 20th century, something of a doomed romantic hero. This concept begins with the Jack Palance adaptation of Dracula produced by Dan Curtis in the 1970s and borrows the concept from Curtis' own property, Dark Shadows, and the doomed romantic vampire, Barnabas Collins. He has walked through centuries, untouched by time. He has seen empires rise and fall. He possesses the wisdom of the ages. Throughout eternity, no man has ever provoked such terrible fear and such haunting desire. Dracula, starring Frank Langella, with Laurence Olivier. I'm the last of my kind, descended from a conquering race. But I must warn you to take good care. If at any time my company does not please you, you will have only yourself to blame. Oh, God! That's my poor soul! This broken-hearted, searching-for-his-lost-love version of Dracula continues in adaptations like Frank Langella's Count in John Badham's film from the 1970s, through Francis Ford Coppola's cheekily entitled Bram Stoker's Dracula, to the present day with films like Dracula Untold which also build on the idea of the warrior Dracula, of which there is little basis to believe that that was at all a part of Stoker's original creation. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I have never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight 
This one we face can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this death. The death of Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker died on April 20th, 1912. Born in the Victorian age, he died in the Edwardian. He had suffered a series of strokes, but also succumbed to the effects of syphilis. He was cremated, and his ashes remain at Golders Green Crematorium. It was a combination of uh, Bright's disease, uh, that is kidney failure, and uh, advanced syphilis. A locomotor ataxia is the uh, medical term in the early 20th century for uh, the loss of motor functions attributable to late-stage syphilis. Many people don't like that interpretation and have tried to um, explain it away. Oh, you know, the doctors didn't know what they were talking about at that time. Actually, in 1912, the study of syphilis was, was one of the most sophisticated uh, branches of medicine, quite unlike medicine was when Stoker was, uh, was, was born. When Stoker was born in 1847, medical science was almost superstition. It was almost on a medieval level. Uh, and in the ensuing uh, six decades of his life, uh, made remarkable strides, almost like Analogous to the development of aviation from, uh, you know, Kitty Hawk to the moon in the 20th century. I, I think the doctor attending Stoker on his deathbed knew what he was dying of. I think Stoker knew what he was dying of. Um, um, Stoker's descendants haven't liked this story so much and uh, have sought to uh, disprove it or discredit it. Uh, I, I don't think it's a mark against Stoker. Syphilis was a very common and untreatable disease in his time. This was the pre-antibiotic era. It was very much uh, like the AIDS epidemic of its time, especially when AIDS was poorly understood and, and uh, had no treatments available. We don't know how Stoker got syphilis. It doesn't necessarily indicate a uh, pattern of behavior. He could, people wonder if, uh, you know, Stoker was was gay or bisexual, uh, and if he had contracted the disease in that way, we don't know. It only took one unlucky encounter. Stoker may have been very repressed in his sexuality. Many Victorian men who uh, were having 
a crisis of uh, sexual identity were told by their doctors to go to prostitutes and fix themselves. Um, did Stoker do that? We don't know. He could have. Could have been something else. After his death, Stoker's widow fought for the copyright and against the unauthorized use of Dracula in the creation of F.W. Murnau's film Nosferatu in 1922. Stoker's novel remains a forceful and as an entertaining a read now as it did then. Its style of multiple voices to tell its compelling story has kept it fresh and modern for each new generation of readers who discovers it. And the idea of Dracula remains as popular as ever with storytellers of the world over in every medium, inspiring new variations and new tellings. Dracula is one of the great stories. Bram Stoker is one of the great storytellers. He died at the age of 64, which was a ripe old age. For that time, uh, when Stoker was born, the life expectancy in Dublin, especially among the the lower classes and the working classes uh, was barely 40. So people living up to their 60s and beyond in Victorian times was, uh, was something to be celebrated. Uh, so he did have a long and rich life. You have been listening to Redfield Arts Presents, the great storytellers, Bram Stoker. With commentary by David J. Skull and Ted Newsom, hosted by Mark Redfield. This program featured the voices of Brink Stevens and J.R. Liston. Written by Lee David and produced by Mark Redfield. Engineered and edited by Bill Dixon of Drat Productions. Additional audio recording by Brink Stevens. Special audio of Sir Christopher Lee, courtesy of Ted Newsom. This program and original content is copyright the Mark Redfield Company. All other content used by permission or under terms of fair use. For Redfield Arts Audio Presents, this is Jennifer Rouse. from Redfield Arts Audio. Baghdad. The great city and its citizens are celebrating. And now, as I am a river to my people... You must kill her, my handsome and still skeptical Captain Sinbad. The only good pirate is a dead one. Face yourself, Captain Bula! The pirates are upon us! Their ship... I shall not rest until all of Badra's ships are burnt, until she herself is destroyed. You remind me of only one other swordsman with such skill. Who? Me! Ah! What is that in that pile? This 
simply the blood of a siren mixed into a potion that I now drink. Look! Look! She changes, Captain! My eyes deceive me. She is transforming into a great beast. Harun, the lamp! Give me the lamp! For you and the people of Zalos, I have complete faith in Sinbad. He's the very man you need. Available now from Redfield Arts Audio. Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that. I am who sure. are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. And what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Why, it's old Fezziwig! Bless his heart! It's Fezziwig alive again! Come in! Come in and know me better, man! I am the ghost of Christmas present! Look upon me! As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens As told by Mark Redfield Music and sound design by Jennifer Rouse From Redfield Arts Audio